now if you have children between the ages of four and seven, now they have the opportunity to go with Mrs. Brister in the back to children's worship. They also, of course, may stay with you if you desire as we gather together around the book of Romans this morning. What a wonderful sound it is to hear children in our midst, isn't it? What a glorious thing. Just a reminder daily that the Lord is strengthening families and and building our church up as we have opportunities to minister to one another. Our text this morning is Romans chapter 14, the first 12 verses. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's Word. God's Word is inerrant. It is holy. It is authoritative. And it is sufficient. Romans chapter 14. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is, before, it is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is also able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word that you have brought to us by your servant Paul. We pray, O Lord, that it would be a word that would guide us, encourage us, and that it would bless us by your Holy Spirit. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. It's an annual affair although it's bigger every four years. I'm not speaking about the election per se. I'm speaking about all of the things that happen as a precursor to the election. And one of those things that happens is some news member or comedian or man on the street goes out and he interviews people to find out just how little people know about American society, politics, and government. And I happened to be watching a new show one evening, and this came on, and it was 
not so much facts as just pictures of various people involved in the government. The president, the vice president, the various candidates, and they were asking people, who is this? One thing they did that was very interesting, though, was they had several Supreme Court justices in the panoply of pictures. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Anthony Scalia, and inevitably they would put them up and someone would go, have no idea. Mm, don't know. And they would flip through, they would take the two Supreme Court justices and then right after them and they would go, ah, that's Judge Judy. What? You don't know the people who lay down the law for our nation, but you know Judge Judy? Why? Well, it's because Judge Judy plays a judge on TV. She's not a real judge. She's like that man in the commercial that says, I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. She plays a judge. She takes the role of judging on herself, even though she really is not elected or appointed to that position. People come in and they volunteer to be judged by her. Now, we look at that and perhaps say, that's kind of silly. If I had to go to jail or not, I certainly wouldn't submit to Judge Judy. If, if I had a million-dollar lawsuit on my hands, I wouldn't put that in Judge Judy's lap. But you see, oftentimes that's exactly the approach that Christians have toward judgment. There is indeed one who is judge and lawgiver. And we seek instead to place judges over ourselves and others who merely play judges on TV. We seek to bring judgment to ourselves rather than leaving it where it belongs with the Lord. I trust that the, the Word has convicted you over these past few weeks as we've, looking at, as we've been looking at sins that affect us, sins that we are easy to excuse, that are so uh, insidious that we see them actually sometimes as virtues. And this is one of them. It's a sin of judgmentalism, of looking down upon our brother, our brother or sister. So what I'd like us to see this morning here from Romans 14 are three things from Paul about judging. Paul has some words to say about judging actions. Judging actions. And then Paul has some things to say about judging beliefs. Judging actions and judging beliefs. But you see, what really underlies all of this is Paul's third point. And that is, he has something to say about judging the judge, judging actions, judging beliefs, and judging the judge. Let's look together then at Romans chapter 14. Paul is writing to the church at Rome, and there is conflict there because there are people of different opinions, and they are criticizing each other based on these opinions. He says in verse 1, As for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. And see, and you thought it was just merely an anecdote that said churches divide over the color of the carpet. No, they not only divide over the color of the carpet, they divide over the menu of the Sunday night dinner. Whether it's meat, or whether it's vegetables, or whether it's something else. And so, 
He looks at both of these groups, encompassing all people in the church. First, he looks at those who he, who he classifies as the weak. And he asks them a question. It's a frank pastoral question. The question is, who do you think you are? Passing judgment over others. Pronouncing a sentence over others. Who do you think you are? Because as a matter of fact, that's what they're saying to others in the church. Who do you think you are acting this way? Don't you know you're not supposed to do these things? Don't you know Christians don't eat meat? Don't you know Christians don't wear green? Aren't you aware Christians all have ranch houses and no multi-story houses? Aren't you aware of these things? It's common sense. And what they're doing is they're passing judgment based on actions. And so they are looking at those who eat meat and they say, these people can't possibly be Christians, or at least they're very weak miserable Christians because they don't understand that a vegetarian diet is the way to go. And Paul says to them, this is a sin you are committing. It is a sin of passing judgment on others. And he asks them, quite frankly, who put you in charge? Who put you in charge of making up the rules for the Christian faith? He might say, I thought it was as my brother James said, that there is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy, and that is the Lord. Where in the scriptures does it speak of only being able to eat vegetables? What are you doing here? Did God sin when he sent quail? Who put you in charge? Because you see, there's a principle here. You may go home tonight and have a thick, juicy roast. Or maybe you're planning tomorrow to put a big steak on the grill and you look at this and you say, well, at least I'm not having that problem. I know a good steak when I see it. You may look over and know someone that would prefer a salad to a big lamb chop and say, well, maybe they have that problem. No, because you see there's a principle involved here. It's not really about the veggies. It's really about the principle the principle is of a weak brother taking to himself the authority that is God's. And we see this in our own society. Perhaps you, like me, have seen bumper stickers that make statements like, Jesus would not drive an SUV. Now think about that for a minute. Someone has taken it upon themselves to move from principles such as wise stewardship of funds, concern for God's creation, to creating a sin. Saying, if you drive an SUV, you're not like Jesus. Well, let me tell you, your pastor's in trouble then. You've got a suburban parked out front. Let me tell you who else is in big trouble are the howls, because they can't fit in a hybrid that seats five. You see, what this type of mentality does is it takes to itself power and authority that is rightfully Jesus's. Now, why would someone do that? Why would we be tempted to do that? I think often it's because it's an easy way to live the Christian life. 
It's very easy to not make difficult decisions and search the Scriptures, but to rather set up hedges that are black and white. There's historical precedent for this. This is basically what the Pharisees did. They were so afraid of breaking God's law that they made up laws to protect people from God's law. You weren't supposed to go in the road? Well, we'll put a fence 30 feet from the road so no one gets even near the road. And so what we find is in conservative Christian circles, things like playing cards is evil. Or in the words of a famous recent movie, playing cards is the devil. Movies is the devil. These things are wrong in and of themselves. Drinking is the devil. Rather than saying, there's a principle behind the card playing. There's a difference between playing Uno with my children and playing poker with the rent money. It's a different principle. It's the gambling that's the sin. It's the presuming upon God's providence that's the sin. It's the waste of time if one is consumed with card playing, consumed with watching movies, that is the sin. You see, we cannot just make a blanket statement. We must look to the truth of the matter. We can't say that all movies are wrong because we know many movies are indeed wrong. We must make a distinction between the movies that are wrong and the movies that are not. A distinction between what is wicked and what promotes good. You see, we don't want to abandon all semblance of right and wrong, but we need to be careful in how we apply it. The question comes to you, if you have hard and fast views, you need to ask yourself why you hold them. I hope you do have hard and fast views. I hope that you have no patience for anyone who says, Jesus is not God. I hope that you have very little patience for someone who claims that it is good and right for a man and woman to have relations outside of marriage. I hope that you have no patience with those who say it's okay to take things from the office as long as it's small and the boss doesn't notice. But you see, all of those things are rooted in God's word, in God's law. You are seeking to stand firmly without wavering on God's word, not hedging on your own. This is a temptation that we face It's a temptation that your elders face and your pastors face because it's so much easier to just come up with a bright line. Requires so much less work. But the problem is it leaves us in a weak position. You see, it's interesting that Paul describes this as the position of the weaker brother, not the stronger brother. Now, lest we get prideful in saying, well, we're strong and we're nuanced and we're sophisticated, reformed Christians. Paul has some words for the stronger brother as well. He says, you are tempted to another sin. You don't want to pass judgment, but you know what you do? You watch the guy passing judgment and you go, fool. Have you read your Bible lately? Come on. If you would just be a little bit more mature. Holding them in disdain contempt, looking down on them, thinking that they're not worthy to be called your brother, not worthy to be engaged. 
everyone knows that you you need to be sophisticated about what you watch and what you read. You can't ban all books. Instead of engaging in a loving fashion. And you see, Paul condemns this view with an equal rigor as he does passing judgment. He says, you can't despise your brother. He says, who are you? In verse 10. Why do you despise your brother? Because you see, at root there, that sin of contempt is the question that comes up is that what is it that makes us right with God? Is it the right actions that we take that makes us right with God? Is it making right decisions? Is the mature, strong Christian more right with God because he understands there are certain things he can do that others have scruples about? No. It's the work of Jesus Christ that makes us right with God. Not whether we know what we can or what we can't do. It's Jesus that makes us right with God. So if this morning you are trying to find as a good, reformed PCA Christian merit in knowing what you can and cannot do under the law, you must repent. You cannot find merit there. You must only find merit in the work of Jesus Christ. Trying to find merit there does more harm than good in trying to decide what is a proper and an improper action. There's a problem as well with being strong in these situations. Paul says you should not be one who provokes. Look at verse 1. He says, one who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. You see, there's another problem that we can have as strong Christians. We welcome someone into our midst who has a view that we know from the Scripture is wrong. And we welcome them in for the sole purpose of putting them in a corner and surrounding them with two deacons and two elders and hoping to land as many body blows as we can. We'll get after this person. They don't believe in the sovereignty of God. Just come to the church dinner. We'll seat you at the table with a couple of the pastors and a couple of elders. By the time you leave... You see, we're not called to provoke people, to wrench them out of their positions, to abuse them. Because you see, Paul knows if we take that tactic, if we have that attitude, it's going to lead to one of two results. One is wounding the weaker brother, and the other is winning him over to an unthinking position. Now, this is important as we seek to be a light to our community and our new church. As we seek to unfold the doctrines of grace and covenant theology and the richness of the scriptures, we don't want to convince a bunch of people who are a mile wide and an inch deep. We want people to grow, to own these truths, to love these truths, to search the scriptures for these truths. We also don't want to have a trail of scattered bodies to and from our door. We want to convince people by the power of the Word and the work of the Holy Spirit. You see, Paul doesn't tell the stronger brother to give up on correcting actions. 
Just let them do whatever they want. But he says you must have the proper attitude. You must do it in love. You must trust the Holy Spirit to do the work in their life just like he did the work in yours. Don't take the Holy Spirit's job. This is what happens when we judge actions. Well, we might think in terms of judging actions that that doesn't happen as often in our circles in the PCA. But one thing that can happen is we can judge beliefs. What do I mean by that? There's difficulties when we judge beliefs. And those difficulties come up in one of two instances. They come up in when we are wrong, and they come up when we are right. You see? Because if we hold the belief, we could either be wrong or we could be right about it, but we could still be judgmental in either instance. What happens when we judge when we are wrong? Paul takes this issue up. He says, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Now, you may read that verse in the little bit of context that I've given you and say, you know what, Paul's right. It really doesn't matter. You could esteem a day or you could not esteem a day. doesn't really matter at all. Paul's saying anything goes. All we need to do is just love each other, right? Turn with me, if you would, to a book we looked at. I was going to say a few months, but now it's a few years ago. That is the book of Galatians, chapter 4. Paul writes this beginning in verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Wow. Whose slaves you want to be once more. Paul's coming at them pretty hard here. What is he coming at them so hard about? He says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. He says, I'm afraid I've labored over you in vain. Wow. Pretty different Paul, huh? He comes at them pretty, pretty strong. There's another church that exists in Colossae. And in chapter 2, verse 16, he says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. That is, let no one pass judgment on you for not commemorating a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath. Now, why would Paul be so up in arms about days and seasons when he's speaking to the Galatians and the Colossians, but not to the Romans? Is this an unimportant doctrine? No. What Paul is showing us here is the way we ought to view doctrinal disputes. You see, we tend to think that deeds and doctrine are completely different matters and we can treat them differently. We can say, well, I understand that we need to be patient with someone when they are doing things that aren't exactly best for them. They're not saving the way they should. They're not being good stewards. They're not being as encouraging to their children as they could. But we can move them along. But when it comes to doctrine, let me get out my sledgehammer. No, see, Paul says, if your doctrine affects a core principle, or if you are using it in a fashion to harm the core principles of the Scriptures, I have no patience at all for that. 
See, in Galatia, they were observing days and seasons and telling people that their standing before God was dependent upon it. That if they didn't observe that day and that season, they were not going to be with the Lord. They were going the other place. You see, they were presuming to pass judgment on justification. You see, here at Rome, that's not an issue. Here we have an issue where the Romans are wrong, just like the Galatians were wrong in saying that we must observe days and seasons. But they didn't affix justification to it. They didn't affix the person of Jesus Christ to it. And so what Paul says is, we need to be careful how we discuss these things. We want to bring them along, but we need to be careful. Because you see, there can be fallout if we take issues that are not central and we blow them out of proportion. Some of you may have heard or may have actually been involved or been members of a church denomination called the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. OPC is a sister church to the PCA, and it was formed in the 30s, birthed in the 30s and 40s. And the OPC had been around but a few years when it split. And it split because even though men came together who agreed that Jesus is God, the Bible is true, liberalism is wrong, there were a group of men that said, we can't possibly be in church with you if you have wine and communion. Because drink is of the devil. So we're going to have to divide over that. Now, the, the cultural context of that is, drink and alcohol was ruining a generation of Americans. Those who had abused it during Prohibition. And it was the cause of much harm and family division and crime. And you could easily point to that and say, you need to stay away from that wickedness. But they went the step further and said, if you don't believe this, we don't think we can have fellowship with you and you can't be a Christian. And so we're going to divide off. This happens in Reformed circles. You see, when we are wrong, oftentimes we don't know it. And so we need to be, Paul says, challenged by the Scriptures. One thing you should never be afraid of is to be proven wrong from the Scripture. You should be afraid of being proven wrong by something else, taken away from the Scriptures. But if you are change your mind, if you are convinced of something in your mind because of the Scriptures, that's a good thing. Paul wasn't afraid of the Bible. He preached and he handed out Bibles and he said to those Bereans, look it up. If there's anything in there that I'm saying that isn't true, tell me. Because, see, he knew it was not a bad thing to have people who were knowledgeable about the Scriptures. And so we want to be a church that is not driven by fear, afraid that we might be wrong, afraid that we might be weak, so we must be insular. No, we must be people of the Bible, seeking not to judge others, but to rather have ourselves judged by the Scriptures. But it's not just those who are wrong that have difficulties with doctrines. You see, we have problems in judging beliefs when we're right as well. You see, in this instance of the days, there's one party that's wrong, 
And there's another party that's right. And Paul comes after the party that's right. And he says, listen, you need to look deeper here. It's not just about who's right and wrong. Right and wrong is important. But so is motive. You see, these brothers over here, they don't understand the Scriptures. But they do it out of service to the Lord. So why would you disdain them? Why would you put them down? Why wouldn't you rather lovingly teach them what's right? Why would you abuse them and make a judgment about their motives and their worth just based on what they believe? Now, notice again that Paul is very careful not to say, it doesn't matter what they believe, let's all get along, Rodney King theology. What he says is it does matter what we believe, but people matter too. Truth is important, but so is love. We want to make sure we're loving, but we want to make sure that when we're being loving, we're speaking the truth. These two things go together. And so those who are strong are called to see that it is important to see that it is not belief that saves. It is Jesus. The most fundamental doctrine of the faith... Justification by faith alone does not save. That doctrine does not save. Jesus saves. Now you apprehend Jesus by that doctrine. But once you do, you realize that it is Jesus that has merit. And you praise God for the truth because the truth brought you to Jesus. Jesus is the end of the truth. That's why the truth is so important. That's why we never let it out of our hands, because the truth is the guide that takes us to Jesus. This is what we want to do. And you see, the problem comes, especially in reform circles, when we want to be right rather than stand for the right. I I know this is a difficult example, and no one has ever had this experience in a marriage where the husband and wife are having a, um, a brisk conversation, and no one has ever said anything just simply because they wanted to be right. Right? You've never had the experience where you've kind of seen what the other person is talking about, but you refuse to acknowledge it because you would rather just be right. You'd rather be an effective arguer, right? No one's ever had that experience. I know I haven't. But you see, that's what happens in the church. We would rather be right than stand with the right. Truth matters. It matters enough that if truth makes me wrong, I would rather change and be right. F.F. Bruce, a late commentator of the Scripture, said this, It is all too easy to interpret orthodoxy that is correct doctrine, as meaning what I think, and heterodoxy as meaning what the other guy thinks. That's a temptation that we have. And that temptation leads us to a lack of patience as we deal with others. You see, Paul doesn't want the truth to go by the wayside. You see, Paul is actually more concerned about the truth than the strong brother's. You see, Paul says, I want you to be very careful and not be judgmental because I want these weak brothers to be convinced. 
I don't want you to just run over them with a Mack truck. I want them to actually be convinced and to be strengthened and to be strong and to convince others. We call that in our mission statement, making mature disciples. He wants us to be convinced in our own right. Now, you may have heard this, this ability to understand that how we say something and the patience with which we say something is sometimes difficult for new converts to the Reformed faith. There's a technical term for it. When someone first comes to understand the doctrines of grace or God's sovereignty or covenant theology, it is called the cage stage. And it's called the cage stage because you are to take someone in that stage for about six months and put them in a cage and not let them near anyone. Until they have an opportunity to understand the breadth and the depth and all of the scriptures that bear on that doctrine, rather than taking out their two or three that they've looked at and beating people over the head with them. And the reason for that is not because we're afraid of fervor, it's because we want people to be convinced. We want a slow burn, right? We have Boy Scouts among us. How do you light a fire? Do you take lighter fluid and douse it all over up and down the, the logs, light a match, woof, right? How long does that fire last? About 10 seconds. Or what do you do? You get logs and you put them right and you put them together so the embers are there so it burns hot and it burns deep and it burns slow, right? How long does that burn? Hours, hours, hours. That takes us back to our Smokey the Bear from last week. Burns so hot and so long, you got to dump bucket after bucket of water on it. You see, we can also fail in our appreciation of others. One of the things that I have found in my own life that I have to appreciate. Some of you may know this man. He's a man by the name of Kirk Cameron. was a star of a popular sitcom about 10 or 15 years ago. And Kirk Cameron is a, is a Christian who goes out with others and does evangelism. And his theology is not all there. Let me tell you. He especially has some Arminian tendencies. But what's been shocking to me is I have never seen anyone, I haven't seen good Reformed scholars go after people with the law the way he does. Showing them their complete inability before God. Asking them about the Ten Commandments. Asking them how they think they could act before God. Now, I have a deep appreciation for that part of his evangelism. Do I appreciate when he brings in Arminian elements? No. Would I like for him to change? Yes. Would I like to have a good conversation with him? Yes. But I would not like him to change so much that he jettisons what he's got that's right. You see, I have an appreciation for that part of it while I still say, honestly, if I were standing before him, Kirk, I think you're wrong about man's ability to save himself. I think we need to search the scriptures. I appreciate you and I appreciate what you're doing in this other aspect. You see, that's the difference. The judgmental heart says, well, you know, Kirk Cameron, that Arminian, nothing good comes out of him. I wish he would stop evangelizing people. I wish he would stop telling people about the Ten Commandments. But you see, rather we should seek understanding to push that in. And you see, we can miss the relational picture as well. A relational picture that is important 
for us as a church. I pray that in our church, it never happens that a church that I'm aware of, there was a Sunday school lesson going on. And someone in the church said, I don't understand um, what you're teaching. Could you explain something to me here? It says here in my Ryrie Study Bible, that's a dispensational, non-covenantal, non-reformed study Bible. It says this, and after that statement was made, the Sunday school broke out in laughter. <laughs> I can't believe you have a Ryrie Study Bible. This is a PCA church. Come on. Don't you know any better? May that never be said of our church. Now, again, do I want them to hold on to that incorrect doctrine? No. But I don't want to be judgmental about it. Because, you see, I've also seen what Paul talks about. I have seen especially young men. I have two in my mind right now. I can see their faces. Who came headlong rushing into the Reformed faith and embraced everything that they could possibly think of. Exclusive psalmody, head coverings, King James Bible only. Everything they could possibly think of that was counter-megachurch. Today, they're all but Romanists. They're this far from the Roman Catholic Church. Because someone took the time to come up and poke holes in their unstable positions. And they had nowhere to stand. And they went all the way to the other end of the spectrum. You can lose your salvation. Babies who are baptized are saved. And so on, and so on. Because no one took the time to get that slow burn in them. It was a shaky house. Well, this is what happens when we judge actions and when we judge beliefs. Briefly then to conclude, the problem with these things is that we come to a point of judging the judge. Paul inserts a segment here in this passage that may seem out of place. He's talking about actions. He's talking about doctrines. He's talking about conflict. And then he says, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are all the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be, both the, he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. And we wonder, what? But you see, what Paul's doing here is he's drawing a connection. He says, when you take upon yourself prerogatives, you take them from Jesus. When you take it upon yourself to be judge and jury, you take the job of judge away from our Lord. And he uses that example. He says, you know, listen. A slave is accountable to his own master, not to you. The Christian is accountable to Jesus, not to you. It's not your job to be telling people what their job is. That's our Lord's job. You see, He is our Lord. I had this experience back when I worked for a law firm. I was working on a transaction, a large one, with a firm out of New York City. And anybody who's lived in New York knows that New York lawyers think that basically anything they say, people just should just do because they've been kind enough to tell you. And I had a junior associate, junior to me, on the phone to me, and he's describing the transaction. He says, well, you can't do that. You've got to do this. And I said, excuse me, who made you my client? 
uh, did you become a partner at my firm? Why do I have to do anything you say? I have to do what my client tells me to do. I have to do what my partner tells me to do. And he, you can almost hear the visible pullback. Because you see, he was taking it upon himself to tell me my job. We don't want to do that with the Christian life. Does that mean we can never speak? No. Jesus has left you plenty of instructions to tell people, as his ambassadors, what our job is. It's all in here. You see, that is our task, to repeat the words of Christ. That's why we have the Holy Spirit. Do you know what the Holy Spirit's job description is? To bring to mind the words of Christ. To only speak the things of Christ. That's the Holy Spirit's job description in the book of John. You see, that's what we're called to do as well. We don't want to take Jesus' prerogative from him. Our goal must be his glory, and we must treat others the way he does. Elsewhere in the book of Isaiah, not the passage we read this morning, it's said of our Lord that he will not break a bruised reed, and he will not quench smoking flax. Is that the way you look at your task, instructing other Christians? You must instruct them from the Word. It is not an option to say, well, it doesn't matter. But do you have that kind of attitude when you do it? You see, Paul thinks this is incredibly important. He presses the point home again in verse 10. He says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? He says, Christ is not only our Lord, he is also our judge. It is Jesus who will do the judging. And he pulls out an Old Testament passage from Isaiah, saying that it's to Jesus that every knee shall bow. So what does all this mean? You know Paul is not shy about the truth. This is, after all, from the book of Romans, where he has already taken the opportunity to tell this church that everyone has sinned, that no one is righteous, to tell them that God loved Jacob and hated Esau before they were born to tell them that God is sovereign, to tell them that nothing can separate them from the love of God in Christ. There's a lot of hard, sharp doctrine in Romans. Paul is not a cream puff. But what he's saying is, if you want people to believe those important, tough doctrines, you must relate to them. You must not judge them. And if you want people to act in biblical ways, you must not judge them for everything they do. You must take them to the Scriptures. Because it's Jesus that they have to answer to for their actions. Not you. Not me. If you are worrying today about what you will do at work this week, because of what I might say or think, repent. Because it doesn't really matter in the final analysis. You need to be concerned about what Jesus would think of your actions. What Jesus thinks of your beliefs. That's the only place where safety is found. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given to us this passage to remind us that it is not only important what we know and what we believe, but how we present it 
that we might do it in a fashion that others might come to embrace it, love it, and share it with others. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you all peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. Amen.